Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Jane Ginn. I'm chairing this morning's lecture, which is by Naomi McCauley, who is a human rights activist and writer, and has a book in progress, which I'm looking forward to reading. Um, please look at the screen for the fire exits and the assembly point. And I'd like to welcome you on behalf of Conway Hall and state the objects. Conway Hall was built in 1929, owned and governed by Conway Hall Ethical Society, a membership organisation for those who are not members. And we invite you to join. The aims are the study and dissemination of ethical principles based on humanism and free thought, the cultivation of a rational and humane way of life, and the advancement of research and education in all relevant fields. The format of the lecture is that there will be a talk from roughly now till about 10 to 12 approximately, and then questions and answers for 30 minutes. And I'm keeping to that limit because our speaker today um, may get rather tired if we go on longer. So there is a reason for curtailing the questions. Um, please bear in mind to fill in the feedback forms after the lecture. So I hand over to you, Naomi. Mm. 
Now, uh, we're not also deny that this doesn't also have an application for the rights of minorities, for people with disabilities, for the sick, etc. Um, but I feel that until we acknowledge that rights which are fu of fundamental importance to the survival of over 50% of the world's population um, are seen as on a par with those human rights which are historically, philosophically, and politically prioritised, um, then we will be very far from any type of equality. If we continue to narrowly define um, what those equal and inalienable rights for all members of the human family are, then we will narrowly define what it is to be human and to be part of this family. And not only uh, would I argue that the historical conception of human rights um, has been based upon a default human, which is male, but also that this, the distinction between the rights that we have into both civil and political rights on one hand and economic, social and cultural rights on the other is a historical and political artifact. It's something that further disadvantages women and girls in the realisation of their fundamental human rights. So I'm going to stick with the modern conception of human rights since the Second World War, but we'd like to acknowledge that these ideas have a very long if disputed history. Whether you go back to the reaction to the Middle Ages and the Protestant Reformation, the Renaissance to Europe, the Magna Carta, or ideas around natural rights and natural laws as developed even later by Thomas Paine, John Stuart Mill, and Hegel, and importantly, latterly, of course, by Mary Wollstonecraft. However, these are all precursors to the situation we had in the second half of the 20th century, as uh, the University of
what is fundamentally necessary for their survival in order for them to thrive, and therefore what it is for them to be human. So as you can see from this, we start off with the relating to the status of refugees convention, of course, which um, has relevance to the Second World War and to the Holocaust, um, onto all forms of discrimination, racial discrimination, uh, discrimination against women, torture specifically, rights of the child, migrant workers, people with disabilities, and rights of indigenous people, just coming out in 2007. Um, with this in mind, I want to focus on one of the fault lines within human rights, and that is between civil and political and economic, social and cultural rights. Now, as I'm sure you know, the UN system came into being um, in 1945 after the Second World War, and the Universal Declaration uh, on Human Rights was drawn up and signed in 1948. It was an aspirational and an inspirational document, and I'd really encourage anyone who hasn't read it to, to read it. Um, it's quite short, and it certainly doesn't have a kind of dry, legalistic language that most of these conventions do. The de declaration was never intended to be legally binding, but to spawn a treaty um, that would be signed up by member states that will make these human rights legally binding. And when I say treaty, importantly, um, I mean two treaties, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, which were both signed in 1966. Now, the declaration was in 1948. The covenants came in in 1966. Why the huge gap? The simple answer is the Cold War. During the Cold War, human rights became an ideological battleground. Uh, crudely put, this thinking saw Washington condemning the Soviet gulags and political totalitarianism, and Moscow retaliating by castigating capitalism for allowing poverty and hunger. The West of Western Europe and the US championed civil and political rights, while the, such as the right to freedom of expression or to a fair trial, while the East of the Eastern Bloc, and importantly the countries that were emerging from colonial rule, supported economics and social rights, such as the right to health, education and work, as primary rights. This is what gives these covenants and the rights that they embrace their political hue, their association with left and right, not because it is intrinsic to these rights, but because of the political machinations of the Cold War. Though it appears nowhere in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the distinction has been perpetuated right up to the present day by some governments, international institutions, and even human rights organisations, with an ongoing refusal to accept economic and social rights um, as, as being real rights. This origin continues to dominate the way that we view human rights in the West or the global North. We use phrases such as civil and political rights being first generation rights and economic, social and cultural rights being second generation. And this is factually inaccurate. The conventions of the International Labour Organization, which cover workers' rights and decent work, actually predate the UN, being formed after the First World War in 1919. As you'll know, round about just after the Bolshevik Revolution, and they thought that workers should probably get some rights so that that doesn't um, uh, catch on around the world. Um, they were the beginnings of an international human rights framework, and they were primarily, but importantly, not exclusively, economic and social rights. These sets 
of rights were separated and codified in these two covenants. And the optional protocols to these covenants, which established individual complaint mechanisms for them, were adopted and came into force in very different time scales. Now, this is an important point. As human rights are meaningless, unless you can claim them, what does the right to housing mean if you have no house? What is your recourse? The optional protocols give these rights legal enforceability, or in legal speak, it's visibility. The legal enforcement of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights happened at its adoption in 1966 and came into force in 1976. This was after the requisite number of countries um, signed up and ratified it. For the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, the optional protocol was not adopted until 2008, 42 years since the covenant was signed, and it only was to come into force three months after it had been ratified by 10 countries. Um, that happened in February 2013, meaning that it comes into force today, Sunday, the 5th of May 2013, is when the optional protocols for the International Covenant on uh, Economic, Social and Cultural Rights comes into force. The result has been that those deprived of access to healthcare, to work, to education or housing, for instance, on, made on the basis of their ethnicity or their gender, have less options for the redress than those whose civil or political rights have been violated. But of course, um, let's not let the um, champagne, champagne corks pop in celebration of these rights suddenly being realised, um, because it does mean that the optional protocol only has effect in countries um, that have signed up to it, or have already domesticated these rights in their own laws. So for example, Kenya has recently implemented a new um, constitution which includes, for example, the right to housing, um, and they haven't signed the optional protocol. Um, there's more than one way to skin a cat, and the UN is just one route. Economic, social, and cultural rights have also been the neglected child of the Western or Northern-dominated human rights movement. Amnesty International, for example, the biggest human rights organization in the world, only changed its statute to incorporate it um, in its mission work on economic, social, and cultural rights in 2001. We therefore had this split in human rights conventions during the Cold War, which sets the tone for how human rights is approached by East and West, a split that echoes in every speech by every politician in the UK today who wrings their hands about immigrants getting social housing or gay couples being entitled to each other's pensions. It wasn't until the Convention of the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, CEDAW, in 1979 um, that these sets of rights were brought back together in an international treaty. This convention has civil, economic, political and social rights within it. It makes the link between the need for political representation of women but demonstrates how meaningless th this legal right is without female access to education, for example. Now, it's no coincidence that it's a treaty on women's rights that brings these two sets of rights together. Indeed, you'd be hard-pressed to find a women's human rights activist around the world who doesn't see the link between civil and political and the economic, social and cultural. As women's human rights activists, we campaign on economic justice as well as political justice. Um, on access to education as much as access to the House of Commons. 
women, it's explicitly clear that these rights are interdependent and indivisible. And our opponents see that too. The Taliban murder female politicians in Afghanistan, as well as shoot a 14-year-old girl in Kedi, Pakistan, for campaigning for her right to education. This hierarchy, or the political hue of economic and social rights, or is it resistance to their realisation, is very much reflected in the UK uh, context. In the UK, the Human Rights Act focuses on civil and political rights found in the European Charter on Human Rights. While the government has failed to ratify the revised uh, European Social Charter, which does cover economic and social rights, such as the right to housing. While individuals in the UK do have some right of redress under EU legislation, for example, when it comes to discrimination in employment, this is still far from comprehensive. This distinction between these rights and the hierarchy between them, perhaps, is unwilling, but certainly in reality, it discriminates against women. This discrimination perhaps is indirect and unintentional, but it's still happening. Due to gender inequality, whether this is historical, cultural, political, um, or and although it varies from country to country, means that women and girls have less access into economic and social rights. For example, in poor countries where people have to pay for their children to go to school, boys will be prioritised over girls within the family. As globally women are more likely to head up single-headed households and be the primary caregivers, they are more in need of housing and more at risk um, of housing rights violations, such as forced evictions. And in this country, again, due to a multitude of factors standing on the foundation of gender stereotypes, women are more likely to be in receipt of benefits of the welfare state and as hard as hit when the, there is a cut to the state. Women are more likely to be the primary caregivers to children and other dependents. They're more likely to be the named recipient for social housing or other housing benefits. Um, as being the caregiver, they are less likely to be mobile um, and they will have dependents to get to school or to pay for the doctor. Now, we can unpack the multiple reasons why this is. And feminists um, are indeed at the forefront of challenging some of these stereotypes about female work um, and wanting men to be more involved in childcare, for example. But the fact is that this is the current state that we're faced in. And this is more starkly true in poorer countries around the world. So until that glorious day that we have complete gender equality, we will have to see access to economic and social rights as something that women and girls particularly need for the fulfillment of their fundamental human rights. And we will be particularly suspicious of those that will let in these rights, create barriers to them, um, to people accessing them, and indeed deny that these actually constitute rights at all, but are instead policies or aspirations or desires, when this represents a disproportionate impact on women. So to give a concrete example of this, I'll focus on the right to health, and particularly on sexual and reproductive rights. Um, uh, and how the attacks on these rights, I believe, deny women the fundamental rights that they need for their survival and therefore their place amongst the human family. I think most people in the United Kingdom would agree that there is a fundamental um, human right, is the right to life, and an allied right to health. If something happens to you, you're either run over by a car or you get cancer, 
uh, you need medical services or you will die. Um, and that will somewhat undermine your right to life. Now, I'm just going to take this as an assumption that health is a human right, but I realise that I would be giving a very different speech if I was doing this in the United States of America. But for brevity, I'll make that assumption. Now, women need health services disproportionately more than men for one fundamental biological reason. They have babies. While men might be more likely to be harmed in war, or women might be more likely to get uh, something like breast cancer, reproduction is the one thing that we cannot escape as a fundamental difference between men and women. Not all women get pregnant and give birth, but zero men do. What we can also not escape is that we are large-headed mammals. And this means that we need help to give birth. We need skilled birth attendants, um, and ideally we need to give birth in a healthcare setting. Um, I won't get into kind of home birth and natural birth and everything like this, but on a global scale, these are the things that, that we need as human beings. But on this one fundamental, and at this point in science, immovable truth, stems women's reliance far more on sexual and reproductive rights and our vital need to access safe and legal medical services. Our vital need to access uh, health and medical information and our vital need to assert and claim our quality autonomy in a way that is not as necessary and not in the same way as for men. Because we, if we don't, we run the risk of dying. Over 300,000 women die globally every year due to reasons connected to pregnancy and childbirth. That's approximately one woman every 90 seconds. And the overwhelming number of these deaths are completely preventable if these women had access to a skilled birth attendant and the proper healthcare setting. But of course, these things don't exist in isolation. A skilled birth attendant needs to be trained. A healthcare setting needs to exist within a health system. Um, and that birth that is taking place uh, needs to be a wanted birth. It needs to be to a physically mature woman who has not suffered violence or mutilation. It has, uh, this woman needs to have access to information and choices. Um, and she also needs to be able to choose the number and spacings of her pregnancies. This is a female who has not been married off at nine years old, who has not undergone female genital mutilation, who has access to contraception, who has sex and relationship education, who does not have an abusive partner, who has not had an illegal or unsafe abortion and does not live in a place where abortion is illegal so that her healthcare provider is too scared to give her an examination in case that brings on a miscarriage. And she hasn't been uh, or at risk of forced abortion or sterilization within her country. These positive rights and the things that, uh, we, that need to be provided and the negative rights, the things that would need to be prevented from to this woman are fundamental to her survival, and I believe more importantly, fundamental to her identity as an autonomous human being. Not all women can have children, but all need bodily autonomy. The right to decide what happens to their body and their own reproduction. As demonstrated above, this means um, a lot of things, but to grab the bull by the horns, as it were, uh, this means a woman's life access abortion. The right to an abortion within the context of sexual and reproductive rights is something that's often been characterised as an optional extra, an auxiliary right, and 
even that women who demand it are being individualistic or selfish. It seen as an issue of conscience for men and women about whether to grant that right to women. Instead, the right to choose is a campaign for sexual and reproductive rights, and thus a campaign to be considered for human beings. And that campaign starts with bodily autonomy. Those that campaign for this right are not enforcing abortion. They've not necessarily had one or will ever have one. Indeed, even some men are pro-choice campaigners. But the principle is fundamental to female autonomy and emancipation. Access to abortion is one of those things that if you remove, you drag a lot of other rights with it. Access to contraception, access to information. It's at the crux of female sexuality, autonomy, bodily integrity, and female freedom. And this is why it's so challenged and so strongly defended. It's not just the procedure, it's the principle and evidence that it implies. Those that reduce pro-choice campaigns to the level of fetishistic choice are those that do see human rights as being defaultly male. Just as we should not call freedom of expression the fetishization of free speech, or the right to organize and representation the fetishization of democracy, these are instead what we would see as rights needed to uphold it uphold a free society. But censorship and the lack of free and fair elections are part of the mechanism of an authoritarian state. And sexual and reproductive rights are not a smorgasbord of women's rights that you can just pick abortion out of and ignore the rest. Instead, we need <coughs> removal and restrict abortion and endanger women's rights and health. Every country with heavy restrictions or bans on abortion has high maternal mortality rates. Women die without it. And where women are forced to travel for safe abortions or undergo illegal, unsafe abortions, it is uh, poor and minority women who are hardest-hit. Without bodily autonomy, women cannot be considered as equal to a man. Instead, our bodies are forever a public space for people to debate over, to legislate over, and to pronounce over. The single biological difference means that unlike men, women risk pregnancy whenever they have sex, when they consent to Unlike men and without a choice, they must carry a fetus to term, to give birth, to breastfeed, rely heavily on the health service during this time, risk poverty and ill health due to pregnancy. And if that um, it doesn't even take into account raising that child afterwards. Therefore, without this experience, the human experience of women, it's very easy to see abortion or access to health care as an optional extra or a special interest for this other these women, and by othering women and this element which is fundamental to our being, you then see women as selfish or individualistic for making these demands for rights that you don't need. For women, our fight for equality starts very viscerally with our bodies and the very space that we take up in the world. Our bodies are our battleground. The fight for control over our internal organs, what we put into our bodies, what we wear when we walk, freedom from harm in our homes, our schools, and our workplaces. For women, our rights are personal and visceral, as much as we fight for our freedom from torture. And the link to torture is an important one. In Nicaragua, which has a total ban on abortion, including in instances where a woman's life is at risk, um, it's been taken, the, uh, Nicaragua has been taken to the UN Committee um, on Against Torture. The committee stated that the ban on abortion in Nicaragua put women and girls at risk of torture, fraud, inhuman, and
and his regular treatment. The verdict shows the cruel indifference to the physical pain, the psychological anguish, and lack of human dignity this ban causes women and girls in the periphery to suffer by denying and thwarting their access to essential medical treatment during pregnancy. One um, particular case came up um, that I've worked with before, a case of Amalia, which isn't her real name. Um, this was a woman who I think was 32, already had a daughter and was happily pregnant when she was, was diagnosed with lung cancer. She was being denied um, treatment for that cancer, including chemotherapy, because it uh, contravened the viability of the fetus. That case did eventually get to the Inter-American Court, um, and she was able to win the rights to her chemotherapy. But without that, um, she was going to uh, die in Cuban, a Cuban act of um, uh, agony. And leave um, a daughter orphan. Um, so we can argue about time limits and viability, about the public health reasons for access to abortion, about how emotional we feel when we see an ultrasound, or how inevitable it is that women will earn less and are treated worse because they haven't had children. But all of this counts for nothing if we don't see women's rights as fundamental human rights and women as equal human beings. Equality at the very least means acknowledging the biological differences that teach women disadvantage in so many ways. To view women's rights as simply desirable rather than essential, and as an optional extra rather than necessary to our mere survival, is also what allows us to negotiate with the Taliban for peace in Afghanistan. And it's only through differentiating between peace and peace for women and girls that we can justify this way forward. The Taliban's oppressive treatment of women while they held power from 1996 to 2001 is well de documented, but I think it's important just to, to go over some of it now. Under their rule, women encountered discrimination in all walks of life. They were denied education, employment, freedom of movement, and political participation and representation. They were excluded from public life, prohibited from studying, from working, or leaving the house, and then chaperoned by a mahram, a male blood relative. In effect, women were confined to the home. The impact of these restrictions was particularly hard on widows and women in headed households. Many forms of gender-based violence were also perpetrated by the Taliban states, including stoning to death for adultery. After the fall of the Taliban, women and girls gradually began to reclaim they sought work, sent their daughters to school, and voted in elections. Some entered politics at great personal risk. But since the re-emergence of the insurgency in 2005, the Taliban and other armed groups, the basic human rights of women and girls are, are again under attack. Regardless of what you think of the invasion and war in Afghanistan, the fact is that the treatment of women was used as one of the positive reasons for invasion and their liberation uh, was celebrated as a success. However, the insistence on women's rights have got quieter and quieter as a retreat is negotiated. Suddenly a compromise is needed. As the Afghan government pursues peace talks, there is a worrying trend towards pandering to Taliban ideology. Women have been banned from certain public spaces, and the government has sought to introduce invasive public morality 
The UK has a moral obligation to support the struggle for human rights for women in Afghanistan, and this must extend beyond the British troops withdrawal. We must ward against cultural relativism or support for armed groups fighting against what some may see as an invasion force. All too often people believe that our enemy's enemy is our friend. Blinded by our own hatred and disgust at war, we fail to condemn the egregious crimes on all sides. An insurgent is not a freedom fighter if they seek to attack the government. And women's fundamental human rights are not something that can be delayed and postponed until after yet another revolution is won. To delay and to postpone to deny, and yet again cast doubt on women's humanity, and to question whether they are human enough for rights, or human enough right now. So what can be done? We can wring our hands about this and point out the inconsistencies and the imbalances, but the weight of history um, weighs heavily upon us. I would argue that there are legal and legislative avenues, but this is underpinned by a cultural change and a need to sometimes flip the world through 180 degrees to understand the gendered nature of the reality we see. We need to get beyond the argument in the UK that economic and social rights are not real human rights. In the first instance, this means letting go of the Cold War analysis of these rights and seeing the of all of them. This doesn't mean that we need to provide everyone with a house overnight. It doesn't mean that we have to have a hospital on every street corner. Human rights are firstly about the bare necessities for life, um, and that these necessities can be provided for and protected for everyone without discrimination. As a developed country with huge resources, even within a recession, we can also progressively realise economic and social rights, which means that we should progress towards the greatest fulfillment of these rights that we can economically, scientifically, and realistically achieve. And importantly, we cannot go backwards. Once these rights have been realized, they can't be taken away. And we need to get over this idea that certain rights are expensive, thus unobtainable, while others are cheap. When we talk about the right to a fair trial, uh, we do not take into account the cost implications, the investment in institutions, the educational detective lawyers um, and solicitors, the cost of translators or clerical staff, the entire law enforcement infrastructure. And yet this is the case often presented against the right to health with its inherent need for a healthcare system. Having said that, with legal aid cuts, we'll seriously restrict those on a lower income with their access to justice. But we're badly served by our politicians on this one. Very few would advocate the legal enforcement of economic and social rights in this country. Indeed, our current Prime Minister, David Cameron, has explicitly said that he refuses to acknowledge economic and social rights as rights. And yet the public do. In Northern Ireland, there's been an ongoing protest for a Bill of Rights. Civil society and public uh, polling shows massive support for economic and social rights. It is those in the political bubble who find them there are those le legal arguments that you cannot legally claim, for example, the right to housing in a way that you can claim other civil and political rights. But many other countries in the world are making a lie of this assertion. Economic and social rights have been incorporated to the laws and constitutions of 
countries from Kenya to India to South Africa to Ecuador. As I mentioned, 10 countries have already ratified the optional protocols for the Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, including Spain and Portugal, and even in Scotland has now an enshrined right to housing through the Homelessness Act 2003. But this will be an uphill struggle, as when the Fawcett Society tried to keep the judicial review on the coalition's cuts and its impact on women, the judge found their arguments to be too academic. Economic and social justice is obviously currently too high ground for, for our judiciary. But the law is never the sole answer to our problems. It's a tool and a tactic which can be effective. For what lies behind the objections of some of the northern governments towards the realisation of economic and social rights is a deep-seated fear about being held legally accountable for these types of violations. Politicians are usually reluctant to hand over power to judges, and they believe um, access to basic services are political decisions, not legal ones. They want to claim credit for combating discrimination or expanding access to basic services, not merely, merely implementing international standards. They want to appear benevolent, not compliant. And if they should do the opposite, they certainly don't want to be held to account. This is not about <coughs> human rights work, however. People have no lesser a need for access to water than accessible courts. And neither should it be left, left to the discretion of a particular government. So the discourse needs to change and we need to make the political arguments. Sometimes the language of human rights and law will help, sometimes not. While the Human Rights Act is being blamed for everything from halting deportation <coughs> to banning children from playing with conkers to giving prisoners Xboxes, the human right to housing for consistently vilified poor in this country may not win hearts and minds. However, when your granny is being evicted from her care home, people may sit up and listen. But the case can still be made with politicians and lawyers who can be won over. When the Joint Committee on Human Rights <coughs> the issue, looked at the issue of the economic and social rights um, in the UK before the last election, they agreed to the inclusion of economic and social rights um, to be enshrined, but subject to a reasonableness review by the courts to ensure commitments were not being ignored. Although this is not massively robust, it certainly goes further than the current situation where we're seeing judicial reviews on government cuts being dismissed. But I believe that we can all participate in a cultural discussion about what we see as human rights and what we see as merely women's issues or women's problems. This is the 180 degree flip policy. When you come across an issue such as the rape of a woman or negotiation with the Taliban or preventing a woman from gaining medical treatment she desires, ask yourself, what if this was a man? What would you think and do about rape as a weapon of war if mostly perpetrated against men? That's not to deny that rape against men does happen and lost in war, and, but let's consider the ramifications and the connotations of that. If you hear someone saying that a woman is asking for it when she's been raped, ask yourself what a man would be doing or wearing to ask to be raped. If the Taliban were stopping men from working, from voting, from going out in public, would we be negotiating with them? If men carry fetuses, would we have such a fervent campaign to stop them accessing an abortion if they chose to? This simple thought experiment is only intended to get people to think about the gender's nature 
of what we approach, uh, that we approach certain issues or debates. It's not to pit women against men or deny the human rights abuses that men most definitely face, but to reveal the different experiences that men and women have of human rights abuses, the different impacts that they feel and how prioritizing one generalized lived experience over another is to deny the human, humanity and the human situation of those whose rights are being denied. So long as access to abortion is seen as an optional rather than a fundamental right, then that we still feel propriety over women's bodies. We still think that peace is about lack of warfare rather than about security for citizens. That we could refuse to see economic and social rights as being important to human survival as civil and political rights, then we continue to deprioritize these rights even so desperately by women and deny their rightful place in the human family. Thank you very much.
So I wouldn't say um, to have a military intervention for, for um, all uh, instances where there are extreme abuses of women's human rights. Um, very much the, the main way um, I think that we found that women's human rights can be upheld <coughs> is by supporting those women's um, human rights activists. Thank you. So you decide on a case by case basis. Questions? Um, I'll do the microphone if I can have a first question. <laughs> <laughs>
um, human rights at the very basis. It cuts across all um, uh, cultural barriers, all ethnic barriers. Um, uh, and it's the bare minimum that we must expect um, of women's rights throughout the world. That's why it's, it's universal um, and, uh, and egalitarian. So how you go about challenging those practices may differ depending on what um, you think will work. So in some countries, changing the law, say for, for example in the UK, changing the law to make sure that female genital mutilation doesn't happen in this country or that no one can take their child abroad for it to happen to them is something that we can do. To actually change the practice within some of the countries that perform it is a far longer process. Just changing a law is not going to have that kind of impact. And so a lot of human rights organisations and women organisations support um, measures to get people to change their behaviours. So although we would quite like to go storming in somewhere and you know, take the rusty <laughs> knife out of someone's hand, actually in order to stop practices like that happening, um, it take a very long time. Um, so within uh, countries that uh, I know where there's um, these kind of programmes going on to stop female genital mutilation, you have to go village by village, changing the hearts and minds of people, giving them a different way to, to, to view the situation. You can't go in with a kind of legalistic Western human rights framework. You need to change the behaviour in order to stop it. So, for example, in a lot of countries, the clusters um, are, um, where female genital, genital mutilation are taking part tend to be women, tend to be elderly women, and often widows. Now these are individuals who will have no status whatsoever if they weren't involved in this ritual. This is something that gives them status. So what we need to do is find another way to give these people status, um, because otherwise they're defending their right to do this as, as fervently as possible, because without it, um, uh, they you know, would lose a hell of a lot, a hell of a lot of resources. So rather than go in and say, you're sort of wrong, we're going to imprison you from doing this, we have to change their behaviour. And that means using probably a different language um, and a different cultural approach, where if the end point is the same, we still want to stop this happening. This is still mutilation and it's still unacceptable and there are no cultural justifications for it. But how we get to that point may mean using different approaches and different um, analyses and different language. Right, I'm going to take three questions in row, yep. if that's all right. Um, that's Liz.
choice who have done actually a lot of work within um, Nicaragua, for example. Um, there are those movements, and I think we do need to kind of resist um, stereotyping all Catholics as, as being the same, but seeing actually the power structure within the Holy See as being, um, being part of the problem. I would say, I think it's very interesting with the new Pope to see which way um, uh, he's going to go on, on this and a number of other issues, as you say, including um, gay rights, um, uh, women priests, uh, and things like that. Um, there was, it was certainly, I think, the uh, restricting access to abortion and bans on abortion was something that was really prioritised by the previous Pope and I think the Mother Forum as well. So far, so good. <laughs> the, the current Pope has But that does have dramatic effects um, for Catholic countries, particularly in Latin America. And it is something that, um, that we, we really do need to, to look at. In terms of removing them to the UN, I'd be skeptical about how influential they were within the UN and whether that would actually remove the problem that they pose. I think, again, in terms of changing the way that they act um, as a state, um, there may be other ways to influence that than rather than banning them to the UN. Um, but, but I don't know, I, I'm certainly kind of open to that argument. Um, in terms of conflicts um, of rights, um, yes, I mean, this, this does come up um, all the time about which rights do um, supersede another one. And with uh, religious rights, I think there's been uh, some really interesting cases coming about in the UK recently. Um, how far your religious rights can impede on other people. So things like um, the cases of the, the registrar who didn't want to um, register civil partnerships, for example, um, wearing uh, religious iconography um, uh, to work, things like that. And I think those cases really did go the right way at the European Court as well. So a registrar cannot discriminate as part of their job in the same way that any of us in our workplace cannot discriminate against um, either our clients, the public, or the people that we work with. You know, if I go into work and I'm racist, then I would be sacked, as I should be, and I think that that, that um, would be the same for, for religion. When it comes to something like wearing a necklace when you're working in an office, then I don't think it is really justifiable to, to ban someone from doing that in the same way that I don't think that you should ban someone from T-shirt with a political slogan on it. It is, um, if anything, it's more of a freedom of expression argument rather than a freedom of religion one, and that's pretty much how um, how it's gone at a European level. Um, when those rights do start impinging on other people's rights, that's where we do have to start stepping in. So when you are impinging on the right of gay people to get a civil partnership and to not be discriminated against when they go into a B and B or into a um, uh, government building than, than absolutely, but I don't think we can legislate for people's own personal bigotry. Um, they have the right to do that as well. If that, when that bigotry starts attacking other people, they need to do so. Thank you. Um, I'll take another three. Sue, um, David Manning's there, and then you. Sue is first. Sue is first.
everybody paying lip service to all these issues. We know the issues, the evidence is there. But until we actually get to a state that people get angry enough to do something about it and realize this is a political issue, not just a feminist issue, we will get nowhere. Thank you, Sue. Saying there are always going to be 
stat matches and until we do um, really start conceiving this as a fundamental human right to women, then I don't think that we are going to be able to move on. And, and I would love to move on. I wish we didn't have to keep talking about this. I wish this wasn't um, a, a constant reduction of human rights and of women's human rights just down to this reproductive function of women. I wish we didn't have to do this because there's so much more <laughs> to being a woman, to, to having human rights um, for all of us than being so essentially.
meet with uh, big multinational corporations. And they're used to getting professional campaigners. They, they send their PR guys to come and meet us. Uh, we don't get um, uh, anyone even vaguely important. They just say the right thing. They get the corporate social responsibility person to say the right thing and to wring their hands and say they're all very, um, they really do understand. Um, but confront them with a gang of 10 year olds <laughs> and they absolutely crap themselves <laughs> because children have a way, it's such a keen sense of injustice mm -hmm. that when it's explained to them, they just say, well, it's not on. <laughs> it's just not on and I'm not taking it. And politicians or um, uh, people who work for big multinationals cannot deal with that. So the more that we can get children involved in this kind of campaigning, the better it can be massively effective, um, if only just to um, really unnerve those in power uh, who generally can't speak to a bunch of 10-year-olds um, from Hackney. Um, and on, uh, on rape, I think this is an incredibly important issue, and um, there are a huge amount of myths around around false accusations um, and around uh, the power imbalance between men and women in these court cases. Um, the fact is, and that um, time and time again, uh, polling and analysis of rape conviction rape conviction rates are actually fairly consistent with other um, conviction rates for uh, other heinous crimes. What is different is reporting rates. So women are not going forward. They're not reporting rape. Uh, they're not going through with an actual um, prosecution. And that is because of how um, disempowered they are within that system. Um, often they're confronted by uh, people who don't believe them, people who don't take proper histories. When they get to a rape trial, they are um, often, although they're being moved to try and stop this happening, they're often being um, with uh, various other details around the rape taking place, which implies that in some way they were implicated in this. And there's been now a couple of um, um, large-scale polls um, to show what people's attitudes are to rape and whether women are partially or wholly responsible for being raped if they're wearing revealing clothing, if they've um, accepted a drink off this man, if they are overwhelmingly um, people in this country believe that women are partially or wholly responsible for being raped in those circumstances. And given that rape is a jury um, trial, means that though that cross-section of the population is represented on the jury, which is why then that affects um, uh, the outcomes of those cases. So why would a woman want to go through that, to go through what are often a horrific um, process in order to get to the trial in the first place. And they go through a trial in which her sexual history is being raped over, in which she's um, being basically implied that she's some kind of like slut, that she asked for it, that she was giving out mixed messages. There's no, um, it's no surprise that women actually don't want to go through that. When it gets to that point, the, usually the evidence is so overwhelming because false accusations rarely, if ever, get there when very true accusations don't get there themselves. And I think the recent um, uh, coming to light of all of the abuse of people like um, uh, Jimmy Sam
Neville and Stuart Hall has really demonstrated how women and girls, and sometimes it's, it's boys and men as well, have not been going to authorities because they didn't think that they were going to be believed. And it takes decades for them to come to um, the point where they're able to, to do this. Uh, the Stuart Hall case in particular demonstrates why we should not have anonymity for um, those accused of rape, because it wasn't until those allegations came out that more and more women said, actually, yes, that did happen to me as well. And they did put their voice to, to, to that too. And suddenly, all out of the woodwork comes all of these uh, women who previously weren't empowered to do so. I think where we do have to do some work is we do have to start talking about that someone is innocent until proven guilty. That's how you weigh that up. It's not about um, uh, trying to say that women are making false accusations or that there needs to be anonymity, but that we need to keep an open mind and until a conviction has actually taken place, then we shouldn't be so judgmental. And when that uh, someone is actually proven to be innocent in the case, um, then that needs to be taken into account as well. And they shouldn't have um, a black mark against their name. Um, but that's the way to combat those kind of um, negative effects on, on men who are accused. The presumption of innocence until proven guilty, um, not uh, trying to besmirch women from acting in rape accusations. Could I say something related to Sue's excellent speech there? That there are women's organisations fighting the cuts and bedroom tax, particularly about the way the cuts are affected women. That is in women's budget groups, the Baltic societies, women against the cuts and women's communities. They've all highlighted the way that women are particularly affected by this government's cuts. So if anybody wants to know about these organisations, come see me after. Yeah, I've got a point There was a big demo against the bedroom tax in Trafalgar Square yeah. yesterday. Yeah. I ran into it. I'm just saying that women's particular disadvantage yeah. has been highlighted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, really, Max, is there more people want to ask? We've only got the last round now of questions, so you're first. Then the woman mm -hmm. there. Um, then you, Terry. Then the man with the orange t-shirt and then John. Five. <laughs> so could you keep them brief? And I think you'll probably want to keep brief yeah, as well. I will. It's a long day. <laughs> yeah. uh, the speaker might like to know that the part of her talk that I found most effective was where she asked men to imagine that they were suffering from the same discrimination from handicaps as women recently uh, find themselves. Second point I, I want to make is an inner form of a question. Can you tell us how many prosecutions have been brought against people in this country because of complicity in female genital mutilation? I suspected that would be yeah. the answer. I'd like to hear what the speaker thinks about that yeah. situation. Um, trafficking, and I was wondering what your 
quite a lot there. I'll try to, to be quite brief because I think all of these areas and all of these questions I think we can discuss for hours, days, weeks on end. Um, I think the point about uh, men putting themselves in the, 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 the situations that a lot of women uh, find themselves in is, is quite an important point and I found this through a lot of the campaigning that I've done previously on um, issues around sort of violence against women is that often it's not the kind of big billboard type campaigns or leaflets through the door, it's actually through uh, personal conversations um, that really change people's minds about things. And I think one of the most effective things that I ever saw was a workshop in which um, uh, people who I worked with who were all pretty much, you know, kind of in their 30s and 40s, um, sitting down to think about how different their life is to their grandmothers, how different my life is to my grandmother, how different a man's life is to his grandfather. And some of the things that came out of that was just quite fascinating, that obviously my, my life is radically different from my grandmother's, uh, particularly because my grandmother is dead. Oh, yeah, she's dead, so that's, that's, a, that's a very particularly uh, pertinent point. Um, but also she, um, uh, she was Irish and um, sent to a laundry uh, because she had an illegitimate child during the war, had her name changed, uh, kind of uh, uh, laundries that were allied to the Magdalene sisters, but it wasn't the same thing. Now that is a, a massive thing that happens within living memory, um, as something that, that disadvantaged women so, so hugely. And there, now I'm in a situation where I'm pregnant, as you may have noticed, um, and uh, have, have chosen not to marry as well. My situation, I, I couldn't have the job I have, the life I have, to be able to come here and speak to you now, to like openly ad admit that and not really think that anyone is going to have a problem with it. It's completely different to the situation that my grandmother was in, where in fact it took um, complete shame upon her family. She had to leave Ireland and had to give up her child for adoption, um, who has only in recent years uh, refound my mother. Um, so my mum has found her half brother. Um, and whereas if you um, have the same conversation with men, there are differences, obviously, between the life that you had and the life that your grandfather had, but probably not as dramatically different as that. Um, there's one thing that I found very interesting, which a man I worked with said, is that one fundamental difference he really saw between him and his grandfather's life was that he has female friends now, in a way that his grandfather would never have socialised with women, would never have had the opportunity to, or it would have been seen as quite weird or frowned upon, or that there must be sexual connotations to that, whereas now men and women can be friends with each other, and, and it seems like quite a small thing, but actually isn't that quite a profound thing? So. Um, I think it's just a very quite, quite an interesting thought experiment anyway. Um, on prosecutions of FGM, as, as I think a lot of people have said, there haven't been any. This is, um, again, it's, it's a very difficult um, area to prosecute as well because this is about the evidence in this trial would be brought by probably a nine or ten-year-old girl against her mother and father. And it is very difficult to support such a young person to do that, where would they feel empowered to do it? Would they know that there was anything wrong that was happening to them in the first place? Would they, they love, may love their mother and father, and so don't actually want to see them pro uh, prosecuted, even if what is happening to them is so horrendous. And this is true of so many different um, other examples of abuse of, of young people, that they find it so hard to come forward, A, because they don't even know that it's wrong, because it's meant to be something that they grow up with, 
but also because they love the people involved and they don't want to, um, uh, to put them in harm's way themselves and feel that they're speaking out of guilt about that. Um, so again, the same way that I think uh, we as a society go about child abuse uh, would be very similar with um, FGM. So again, it's, it's often through um, educating teachers who are likely to see some of the signs um, of this happening, that um, listening to children talking to each other, and if uh, a child is saying to one of her friends that she's going to have to go away soon, and, and she thinks that she's going to become a woman, or using that kind of language is often a kind of identifier um, of these things going on. So it is being vigilant around that kind of thing, but also, um, not being uh, not overly stereotyping, but still realizing that there are um, particular um, ethnicities or cultures where this is likely to happen as well. So, kind of focusing education initiatives on schools um, where girls who are at risk might be, and that goes the same not only for female genital mutilation but for forced marriage as well. And I think there's been quite a lot uh, going into um, uh, getting that kind of information into schools. I actually came across quite an interesting initiative recently, which is on forced marriage, which is about uh, young girls getting an app on their phone. So if they, and rather than it not being necessarily a kind of panic button for them, but it being um, in the form of a game that they can go through and answer questions, and if something's happening to them, maybe this is the way it's going. And it's just looking at some of these quite like innovative ways of reaching out to that particular demographic um, and to, to try and find those those um, risks. On porn, oh my God, <laughs> we could talk about this for, for days and weeks. This is um, something I find uh, quite difficult being part of the kind of feminist movement within the UK is how much of a fault line porn and prostitution has uh, become within um, the feminist movement and how polarised language such as uh, um, kind of abolitionists or prohibitionists have come out with people who are against prostitution, people who are pro-sex workers are being called pimps. It's just, um, it's become such a minefield and, and feminists have become so divided over this and so much infighting and criticism around it, which I find um, just really, really distressing. I, I still think we need to have a debate, obviously, but I think the, the kind of nature of um, I've worked on uh, issues around sex trafficking before, and it certainly does happen. And I think that there's a bit of denialism that sometimes comes in in this uh, country. Um, women are trafficked into prostitution. The numbers, the severity of it is something that's debated, but it does happen. And yes, that is then linked into the fact that um, the sex trade and prostitution happens at all. Personally, um, I would take the approach of harm reduction. So it is um, ideally that, that, I mean, there are women out there who positively choose to go into um, uh, prostitution and pornography. I personally believe that they are a tiny minority, um, but they feel um, empowered to do that, um, and that's fine. There are a huge amount of uh, women who I think it's, um, uh, it's a last resort for them. They may have no other choices uh, but to go into to prostitution. And for them, they need support. Um, and if that means through um, increasing the rights of sex workers, making sure that there are um, 
uh, exits out of prostitution, outreach projects, whatever it is, then that needs to be done. And then also there are those for which the compulsion into the prostitution is extreme. So there are people who will say that women are, are compelled into prostitution through poverty, and I, I, I completely accept that as an analysis. But there are some who are literally kidnapped, bundled in the back of um, uh, vans and doors over to this country and handcuffed to a radiator. And there also needs to be a way of um, dealing with that too. So I. It's a, bit, it's a bit of a fudge, I would say. Um, I, I would see there being a kind of like link and continuum between um, uh, prostitution and pornography, but also that um, pornography, I mean, I think it's um, it was a phrase that rules 37 of the internet, but if, it, if it, there's porn of it. When we say pornography, I think we're often thinking of the very large amounts of um, commercial porn that is involved that is often very misogynistic in nature and that certainly exists and I certainly think we need to have a debate about what happens with that and around censorship um, or regulation but also porn covers so many different things you know there are people who are um, turned on by people being covered in balloons like <laughs> there is that's an amazing thing around human sexuality is that it's um, so diverse and so um, so different for so many people. So I think that when people talk about trying to ban porn for quite a lot of people, that can mean so many different things to them. It can mean erotica, it can mean all these weird sweet prints, it can mean um, you know Asian babes, it can mean so many different things. And I think that we need to kind of, uh, when we're talking about um, cracking down on extreme violent porn, we need to be quite specific about what we're talking about. Um, so why women keep voting against their own interests? Yeah, <laughs> if only I had an answer for that. Um, I think, again, what uh, a lot of people would say is that there is an um, internalisation um, of patriarchy as well. So um, I, I feel sometimes quite uncomfortable with that analysis because I think you start getting into false consciousness that uh, when a woman says, um, well, you know, I do, well, I don't want to do this, then you can just turn around to her and say, oh, well, that's just because you've been you don't know what you what you need. You need to be forced to be free. Um, but at the same time, there are um, a lot of women who their their validation and their identity comes through very stereotypical gender norms as well. Um, some may be choosing that very openly, and some may may be doing it in order to, to get that kind of validation. And I think we can never underestimate how how powerful gender stereotyping is when you are getting it from the first.
when we have a conflict between individuals, then statements will need to be in order to, to sort that out, whether that is someone's religious freedom to discriminate against people or whether that's you know someone's case row going over someone else's case row. There needs to be some kind of arbitration of that. Um, when it comes to uh, where I feel that we're certainly getting to now, and I don't think this is a new thing, I think this has gone on for a long time, about how the discourse around human rights has kind of mutated into this discourse around regulating people's behaviour. So, um, and using human rights as a way of uh, um, criticising someone or um, penalising someone for their behaviour. So this came up during the, <coughs> the riots in London last year, was it? It seems, it seems like yesterday, um, but last year where they were talking about children and uh, of the families of children <coughs> who were involved in rioting actually having their social housing taken away from them. So trying to use what is a, uh, a right to housing um, as a way of regulating um, a child's behaviour or a family's behaviour. And similarly, I think that that can be said for, you know, again, this like uh, mythology of single mothers with many children. Um, it's not easy being a mother. I don't think that women really um, necessarily choose to, to make themselves so marginalised and so reviled that they would actively choose to do that. Um, but then kind of trying to take away their benefits as a way of punishing them for their behaviour um, is, is not helping anyone in that situation. And that shouldn't be how human rights are actually used as, as a stick to beat people with either. And just finally, on um, elderly people campaigning, um, I simply don't believe you. <laughs> I think that there is a huge amount of campaigning being done by older people and by elderly people amazing over the last few years and increasingly as people are living longer um, and have uh, more resources as well, the, the kind of political power that the kind of pensioner army and the silver surfers out there can have is massive. So it might not be marching on the streets, it might be doing work online and there's a lot of kind of accessible ways uh, to get out there but if you're, you have you know, the time and the resources on your hands to go down and have a go at your MP about these things, and you really need to kind of embrace that power rather than suggest it.